Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Whitechapel Women, Part One. Content Warning This episode contains sometimes graphic descriptions of violent acts committed against women. In every instance, I will be quoting verbatim from primary source materials and nothing else. If you wish to fast forward through these descriptions, I invite you to do so. I include them not for sensationalism, but because they are an integral part of the truth. Jack the Ripper The very name, three perfectly chosen words, has conjured terror within the hearts of millions for 132 years. A person named Jack could be anyone, anywhere. We still do not, and probably never will know, who he was. But anybody who has ever been touched by this tale even once remembers what he did. The ripping, the knife, the blood. To try and find his identity, to finally know the absolute truth, has become an obsession for many. Too often with this tale, I think, we've allowed the myth to obscure the reality. When most of us think about Jack the Ripper, we think about a faceless monster wearing a black top hat and cloak, stalking his victims through dark streets bathed in rain and London fog. But the truth is that each time the Ripper killed, it was on a night with no fog. Of all those nights he took an innocent woman's life, there was only one night where it was even raining. The truth is that the letter written to Scotland Yard where the killer named himself Jack the Ripper was almost certainly written by a journalist to boost sales at his newspaper, the police even thought they knew who the hoaxer was. There is one letter, written from hell, that some scholars of this case, ripperologists, believe could possibly have been sent by the true murderer. In the from hell letter, the killer tellingly does not use his by then already famous name. Jack the Ripper, as a name, was an invention. 
Scotland Yard called him the Whitechapel murderer, which is the terminology I will use most frequently going forward. But it is because of that name that this case is remembered. If you hear Jack the Ripper once, you never forget it. The name gave this case an immortality it may not have achieved otherwise. He was, in a sense, the first modern serial killer, although many others since have subsequently gone much further in their atrocities against human life. He committed his crimes at the perfect time, in the perfect place. Forensic science was in its extreme infancy, and the notion of identifying a person by their fingerprints was only a few years away from being born. Before and during the Autumn of Terror in 1888 Whitechapel, the police believed their primary function was to prevent crime, not solve it. Criminals were convicted if they were caught in the act by police or by the sworn statements of other witnesses who were willing to testify in court. The Whitechapel murderer was a kind of horror no one had ever seen before. Police work and science eventually adapted, but too late to bring the killer known as Jack the Ripper to justice. The list of potential suspects is long and endlessly debated. Everyone has their favorite. But how many of you know the names of all of his victims, the names of those women. We will most likely never know who the Whitechapel murderer was, but it is possible to know who these women were. There is much in the historical record if you look for it, and you should. That is the tale I am going to tell you, not his story, but theirs as much as I can. Those threads often intertwine, but it is the stories, the lives, of Martha Tabram, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly that will be at the forefront of this dark tale. Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, authors of the intensively researched and epically brilliant graphic novel about the Whitechapel murders, From Hell, drew inspiration from science fiction and Hitchhiker's Guide author Douglas Adams' book, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. The idea was that to solve a crime holistically, to solve it wholly, you would need to solve the entire society in which the crime occurred. To understand the Whitechapel murders, you must also understand Whitechapel and the East End of London as a whole.
The first known written record of the East End as a distinct entity, as opposed to its component parts, comes from John Stripe's 1720 Survey of London, which describes London as consisting of four parts, the City of London, Westminster, Southwark, and that part beyond the Tower. From the very beginning, the East End was regarded as other, separate from the more civilized parts of London. It was a place that author Jack London called the Abyss. In the late 19th century, London was the largest and most populated city in the entire world, the center of the massive British Empire. We remember Victorian London as a gilded world of immense wealth and sophistication, but there was a dark shadow running underneath the beautiful exterior. The word unemployed was first used in 1882, and an economist named William Marshall first introduced the term unemployment in 1888 the year of the Whitechapel murders. A study by Charles Booth in 1889 estimated that 36% of the East End population was living in abject poverty. Author Peter Ackroyd writes in his book London, A Biography, all the anxiety about the city in general then became attached to the East End in particular, as if some peculiar sense, it had become a microcosm of London's own dark life. Whitechapel was widely considered to be the very worst part of the East End. Yiddish theatre actor Jacob Adler, the father of famous acting teacher Stella Adler, immigrated to Whitechapel in the 1880s, as many Jews did. And he wrote, The further we penetrated into this white chapel, the more our hearts sank. Was this London? Never in Russia, never later in the worst slums of New York, were we to see such poverty as in the London of the 1880s. A journalist named Arthur G. Morrison wrote of Whitechapel for the Palace Journal newspaper on April 24, 1889. A horrible black labyrinth, think many people, reeking from end to end with the vilest exhalations, its streets mere kennels of horrent putrefaction, its every wall, its every object slimy with the indigenous ooze of the place, swarming with human vermin whose trade is robbery and whose recreation is murder, the catacombs of London darker, more torturous and more dangerous than those of Rome, and supersaturated with foul life. Others imagine Whitechapel in a pitiful aspect. Outcast London, 
black and nasty still, a wilderness of crazy dens into which pallid wastrels crawl to die, where several families lie in each fetid room, and fathers, mothers, and children watch each other starve. Some years ago, it was fashionable to slum, to walk gingerly about in dirty streets with great heroism and go back west again with a firm conviction that something must be done. And something must. The poor in Whitechapel lived in slums called rookeries in the Victorian era. Rooks or crows nest in large colonies of multiple nests clumped untidily together in treetops. Charles Dickens, in his 1839 book Sketches by Boz, described the rookeries of Whitechapel as wretched houses with broken windows patched with rags and paper, every room let out to a different family, and in many instances to two or even three. Filth everywhere, a gutter before the houses and a drain behind, clothes drying and slops emptying from the windows, girls of fourteen or fifteen with matted hair walking about barefoot in white greatcoats, almost their only covering, boys of all ages in coats of all sizes and no coats at all, men and women in every variety of scanty and dirty apparel, lounging, scolding, drinking, smoking, squabbling, fighting, and swearing. Those who could not afford to rent space in a rookery resorted to the common lodging house, or doss house, where four pence could purchase you a bed for the night, usually shared with others, or sometimes only a small space on an already crowded floor. All those who were lucky enough to sleep the night in a doss house were forced to leave at 10 a.m. and not allowed to return until the evening. Between those times, no matter how sick or infirm you were, no matter how cold it was or how much it rained, you had no choice but to walk the streets. The last resort for the homeless, if they were deemed healthy enough, was the workhouse. If accepted to a workhouse, you were forced to surrender all your clothes and personal possessions. You were given a bed and meager meals in exchange for doing pointless mind-numbing hard labor during the day. Men were tasked with breaking up large stones over and over. Women and children picked oakum with their bare fingers. Entering the workhouse was considered by many to be a final humiliation, an admission of defeat, proof that you were incapable of caring for yourself. As Charles Dickens wrote about the London workhouses in his 1843 book, A Christmas Carol, many can't go there, 
and many would rather die, Ebenezer Scrooge replies. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. And in fact, there are numerous newspaper stories from this time period of people who, faced with the prospect of entering the workhouse, chose to commit suicide instead by drowning themselves in the Thames. This extreme, unrelenting poverty forced many women to prostitute themselves to survive. In October 1888, the Metropolitan Police estimated there were 1,200 women practicing sex work in Whitechapel alone. Most of them did not have the shelter of brothels, but practiced their trade on the streets alone and terribly vulnerable. Clients were often intoxicated, and a trick many sex workers used was to rub a piece of soap against their inner thighs before meeting a client, then take him to a dark corner to have sex standing up against a wall. In many cases, clients were too drunk to realize they were not actually penetrating the woman whose services they bought. It's important to also understand the currency of London during this time, which was divided into pounds, shillings, and pence. Twenty shillings made up one pound. Twelve pence made up one shilling. Thus, it took 240 pence to make up only one single pound in Victorian England. Most women who practiced sex work in Whitechapel charged three pence for cl per client. The reason being that three pence was the price of a large glass of gin. Alcoholism is a disease that all the women murdered during the Autumn of Terror shared. Anything to help dull the pain of life in this place, in this time, where you didn't know from day to day if you'd be able to find a bed to sleep in at the end of another long night, or when you'd be able to eat again. Anything to forget the life you once knew, and everything you'd lost. Anything to survive one more night. Martha White was born on May 10, 1849. Her parents were Charles Samuel White and Elizabeth Brothers, and Martha was the youngest of their five children. Her parents separated in 1865 when Martha was 16 years old, and her father Charles died suddenly of illness on November 15, 1865, at the age of 56. Martha married a man named Henry Samuel Tabram on Christmas Day, 1869. In 1871, the couple moved to a house not far from the house where Martha had grown up. Together they had two children, 
Frederick was born in February 1871, and Charles was born in December 1872. After the birth of their children, Martha and Henry's marriage began to fall apart due to her alcoholism. By 1875, Henry Tabram had enough and refused to live with Martha any longer. She left the house for good, taking her two young sons with her. Henry Tabram gave Martha a weekly allowance of 12 shillings to help support her and the children. Her drinking worsened over time, and after three years, she reportedly began accosting Henry in the street for more money. In return, Henry drastically reduced Martha's allowance to two shillings and sixpence per week. In 1879, Martha fell in love with a carpenter named William Turner and began living with him. When Henry Tabram discovered that Martha had taken up with another man, he refused to support her or the children any further. The last time Henry Tabram saw Martha was 18 months before her death. She was on Whitechapel Road, and she was almost too drunk to stand. Martha's relationship with William Turner was also troubled because of her alcoholism, which caused frequent separations. Martha and her two children are on record as being admitted to the Whitechapel Union's workhouse in 1881, but Turner uh, Turner always eventually took Martha back. He later said, Since she has been living with me, her character for sobriety was not good. If I give her money, she generally spent it on drink. In fact, it was always drink. A neighbor named Mary Bousfield said that Martha was not a perpetual drunk, but that she would rather have a glass of ale than a cup of tea. Martha frequently went out late at night and sometimes didn't return until morning. The couple finally broke up for good in July 1888, three weeks before Martha's death. When Turner left her, Martha didn't have money to pay the rent, so she left the house for the streets. Touchingly, soon afterward, she returned to the house in the middle of the night and quietly left the key to her room where the landlord would find it. The last time William Turner saw Martha Tabram on August 4, 1888, he gave her one shilling and sixpence so she could buy some trinkets to sell or trade for food. By this time, Martha had also turned to sex work as a method of surviving on the streets. It is not known what became of her two children. They vanish from the records we have left. Monday, August 6th, 1888, was a bank holiday. So those who were fortunate enough to have regular employment were enjoying the final day of a three-day weekend. Between 7 and 8 p.m., Anne Morris, 
who was Henry Tabram's sister and thus was Martha's sister-in-law, reported seeing Martha Tabram enter the White Swan Pub on Whitechapel Road, alone. At 10pm, Martha entered the Two Brewers Pub with her friend Mary Ann Connolly, who had the nickname of Pearly Paul. They each had two prospective clients with them, both soldiers in uniform. The quartet stopped by several pubs in Whitechapel drinking ale and rum. At 11.45 p.m., Martha Tabram and Pearly Paul separated, each leaving with their soldier client in opposite directions. That was the last time Martha Tabram was seen alive. At 1.40 p.m., Joseph and Elizabeth Mahoney returned to their home at 47 George Yard buildings, described in the press as a block of model dwellings inhabited by people of the poorest description and situated just off the Whitechapel Road. Elizabeth Mahoney returned down the stairs of the building five minutes later to buy some supper at a grocery shop on Thrall Street. She returned to George Yard ten minutes later at 1.55 a.m., once again going up the staircase, which was completely dark and unlit. She noticed nothing unusual. At 2 a.m., policeman Thomas Barrett noticed a man who appeared to be a soldier loitering in the street near George Yard. When questioned, the man told Barrett he was waiting for a mate who had gone with a girl. At 3.30 a.m., a cab driver named Alfred George Crow returned home to George Yard. When climbing the staircase, he noticed someone lying on the first floor landing. Since it was common to see the homeless or the drunk sleeping in the stairwell, he thought nothing of it and continued up the stairs to bed. At 4.50 a.m., John Saunders Reeves left his room at George Yard to go to work. The light in the stairwell was better with the coming sunrise, and on the first floor landing Reeves discovered the body of Martha Tabram lying in a large pool of blood. He ran for a policeman. At 5.30 a.m., Dr. Timothy Robert Killeen examined Martha Tabram's body and estimated that she had been dead about three hours, marking her time of death at around 2.30 a.m. Martha Tabram had been stabbed 39 times. Her list of stab wounds is as follows. Five wounds in the left lung, two wounds in the right lung, one wound in the heart which alone was sufficient to have caused her death, five wounds in the liver, two wounds in the spleen, six wounds in the stomach. According to Dr. Killeen, the focus of the wounds were the breasts, belly, and groin area. 
When Martha's body was discovered, her skirts were pulled up and her legs were widely separated. Martha Tabram died on August 7, 1888. She was five foot three, with brown hair and a dark complexion, and 39 years old. The verdict at the inquest was willful murder by persons or persons unknown. Paul Begg writes of Martha Tabram in his definitive book on the case, Jack the Ripper, The Facts. Unlike those of the later victims commonly attributed to Jack the Ripper, her throat was not cut and she was not eviscerated, which is why she has commonly been dismissed as a Ripper victim. Nevertheless, Tabram was, consi was considered a Ripper victim by Frederick Aberline, Sir Robert Anderson, and Walter Dew. Who were the three senior Scotland Yard officials who directly investigated the Whitechapel murders? Paul Begg continues, She should, perhaps, be placed in the canon. As I do here. Martha. Mary Ann Walker, who often went by the nickname of Polly, was born on August 26, 1845. On January 16, 1864, Mary Ann married William Nichols. She was 22 years old. Between 1866 and 1879, Mary Ann and William Nichols had six children, Edward, Percy, Alice, Eliza, and Henry. In 1880, a year after the birth of their fifth child, William and Mary Ann Nichols' marriage ended for good. William Nichols claimed the marriage was ruined by Mary Ann's excessive drinking. Mary Ann's father acknowledged that his daughter was an alcoholic, but maintained the final straw in the marriage was that William had an affair with the woman who had nursed Mary Ann during her final pregnancy. William Nichols responded, I did not leave my wife during her confinement and go away with a nurse girl. The woman deserted me four or five times, if not six. The last time she left me without any home and with five children, the youngest one year and four months. Whatever the truth was, it was obviously not a happy family. Perhaps tellingly, Edward Nichols, the eldest son, refused to have anything to do with his father during his mother's funeral. Regardless, William Nichols paid Mary Ann, now going by the name Polly, a weekly allowance to help support her. He stopped these payments in 1882 when he discovered Mary Ann was working as a prostitute. After this, Historical records present a detailed portrait of her final years, 
which I am quoting from the excellent and essential website www.casebook.org. 424.82-118.83 Lambeth Workhouse 118.83-120.83 Lambeth Infirmary 120.83-324.83 Lambeth Workhouse 324.83-521.83 She is living with her father in Camberwell. He testifies at the inquest into her death that she was a dissolute character and drunkard whom he knew would come to a bad end. He found her not a sober person, but not in the habit of staying out late at night. Her drinking caused friction and they argued. He claims that he had not thrown her out but she left the next morning. 521-83-6283 Lambeth Workhouse 6283-1026-87 She is said to have been living with a man named Thomas Dew, a blacksmith with a shop in York Mews, 15 York Street, Walworth. In June 1886, she attended the funeral of her brother, who had been burned to death by the explosion of a paraffin lamp. It was remarked by the family that she was respectably dressed. 10.25.87 She spends one day in St. Giles Workhouse, Endell Street. 10.26.87 to 12.2.87, Strand Workhouse, Edmonton. 12.2.87 to 12.19.87, Lambeth Workhouse. On 12.2.87, it is said that she was caught sleeping rough out in the open in Trafalgar Square. She was found to be destitute and with no means of sustenance, and was sent on to Lambeth Workhouse. 1219.87-1229.87 Lambeth Workhouse 1229.87-1488 No record. 1418.88-1468.88 Mitcham Workhouse Holborn Infirmary. 416.88-512.88 Lambeth Workhouse. On May 12, 1888, Mary Ann Polly Nichols left Lambeth, Lambeth Workhouse to take a position as a domestic servant in the home of Samuel and Sarah Cowdery. This was common practice at the time for workhouses to find domestic employment for female inmates. Polly Nichols wrote to her father, I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. 
It is a grand place inside, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been new all has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I have not too much to do. I hope you are all right, and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present. From yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. Her father replied to the letter, but does not hear back. She works for two months and then left while stealing clothing worth three pounds ten shillings. 8188 to 8288, Gray's Inn Temporary Workhouse. Last addresses. Wilmot's Lodging House at 18 Thrall Street, Spitalfields. There she shares a room with four women, including Emily Holland. The room is described as being surprisingly neat. The price of the room is fourpence per night. On 8-24-1888, Polly moves to a lodging house known as the White House at 56 Flower and Dean Street. In this Doss house, men are allowed to share a bed with a woman. Sometime roommate and friend Emily Holland described Mary Ann Polly Nichols as a very clean woman who talked very little about her affairs and who always seemed very melancholy, as though some trouble was weighing on her mind. But she kept herself to herself. On the night of Thursday, August 30th, 1888, the rain fell heavily in London, accompanied by peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. Two large fires had broken out on the nearby docks, and many residents went out to watch the blaze for entertainment. The immense fires that night turned the sky over Whitechapel red. At 11 p.m., Mary Ann Nichols was seen walking on Whitechapel Road. She entered the Frying Pan Pub, drinking there until 12.30 a.m. She left to go back to her lodging house on Thrall Street. At 1.20 a.m., Mary Ann was forced to leave the kitchen of her lodging house because she did not have the fourpence to pay for a bed. She is reported about laughing about this to the keeper, saying as she left, Never mind, I'll soon get my doss money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. She was wearing a black straw bonnet no one had ever seen before. At 2.30 a.m., Mary meets roommate Emily Holland on Whitechapel Road. Holland reported that Polly Nichols was very drunk and staggered against the wall. 
They talked for seven or eight minutes. Nichols said, I've had my DOS money three times today and spent it. It won't be long before I'm back. And then she walked away down Whitechapel Road. This is the last time Marianne Polly Nichols was seen alive. Bucks Row is a narrow street, a ten-minute walk from where Mary Ann was last seen. Its only illumination at night came from a single gas lamp at the far end of the street. At 3.15 a.m., policeman John Thane passes through Bucks Row on his beat. He sees and hears nothing unusual. At 3.40 a.m., a man named Charles Cross entered Bucks Row and saw something lying against one of the gates. He testified, I could not tell in the dark what it was at first. Stepping into the road, I saw it was the body of a woman. Just then I heard a man approaching and I said, Come and look over here, there's a woman. The man who joined Charles Cross was Robert Paul. Blood oozed from a deep wound in the woman's throat. The woman's clothes were raised almost to her stomach, a black bonnet on the ground near her head. Her hands and face were cold, but her arms and legs were still warm. Richard Paul believed he detected a very faint heartbeat. Policeman John Thane is summoned by the two men, and soon Dr. Rees Ralph Llewellyn was also at the crime scene. At 3.50 a.m., Dr. Llewellyn pronounces the woman dead at the scene, but only for a few minutes. When the body was moved to be taken to the mortuary, a large spot of congealed blood was found underneath her, starting to run into a nearby gutter. At the inquest into the murder of Mary Ann Polly Nichols, Dr. Llewellyn gave the following medical testimony. Five teeth were missing, and there was a slight laceration of the tongue. There was a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw on the right side of the face. That might have been caused by a blow from a fist or pressure from a thumb. There was a circular bruise on the left side of the face which also might have been inflicted by the pressure of the fingers. On the left side of the neck, about one inch below the jaw, there was an incision about four inches in length and ran from a point immediately below the ear. On the same side, but an inch below, and commencing about one inch in front of it, was a circular incision, which terminated at a point about three inches below the right jaw. That incision 
completely severed all the tissues down to the vertebrae, the large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about eight inches in length. The cuts must have been caused by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp and used with great violence. No blood was found on the breast, either of the body or the clothes. There were no injuries about the body until just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound running in a jagged manner. The wound was a very deep one, and the tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. There were three or four similar cuts running downwards on the right side, all of which had been caused by a long-bladed knife which had been used violently and downwards. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All the injuries were caused by the same instrument and would have taken four or five minutes to inflict, perhaps by someone with anatomical knowledge. Apart from the clothing she was wearing, Mary Ann Nichols' only worldly possessions were a comb and a small piece of broken mirror an item highly prized in the bleak world she lived in. In the early afternoon of Saturday, September 1st, 1888, William Nichols was brought to the mortuary to view the body of his deceased wife. He had not seen her for three years and reportedly broke down when he saw her face her eyes still halfway open, saying to her corpse, I forgive you as you are for what you have been to me. At the inquest, Marianne Nichols' grief-stricken father testified, I don't think she had any enemies. She was too good for that. The inquest's verdict was willful murder by person or persons unknown. In all the books and documentaries about this case I've read and seen, there is one fact about Mary Ann Polly Nichols that no one has ever thought to mention. Mary Ann Nichols was murdered only five days after celebrating her 43rd birthday. She looked 10 years younger than she actually was. Exactly like the murder of Martha Tabram three weeks earlier, the date of Mary Ann Nichols' murder, Friday, August 31st, 1888, was another bank holiday. 
those who were fortunate enough to be employed had just begun enjoying another three-day weekend. Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the White Chapel Women, Part 2. There is still much more to be told. If you enjoyed the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theatre on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get episode transcripts and other spooky things I'm working on, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as one dollar a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, going dark.